Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Last week, Steve kicked us off at the beginning of 1 John chapter 2, the first 14 verses, and he gave us these three questions to ask to know whether or not we are in the faith. Question number one is what do you believe? Question number two is how do you live? And question number three is how do you love? And so that brings us to our text for today, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And as we begin, the words are gonna be on the screen. Would you just read these out loud with me? Here's what John writes. He writes this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I think you may have picked up by now that uh, today is technically my trial sermon, uh, which to many of you is nothing new because you're probably thinking that most of my sermons are a trial uh, just to get through. And I don't blame you, but we're Christians, right? And we believe that God uses even trials and tribulations to strengthen us. And if that is true, then maybe he can even use a trial sermon to make us a little more like him. Would you join me in prayer this morning as we prepare to open God's word? God, we love you. And we love getting to gather here as your people in your presence to get to hear from you as we open your word that we've been saved by your son and filled by your spirit, Lord. These are incredible truths and we just bask in the beauty of it this morning. And so our simple prayer here today, Lord, is that you would speak. We are your servants and we are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I love baseball. Uh, Now, don't get me wrong, I like football and I'm excited for Carson Wentz to get healthy and to see what our boys in blue can do this year. I like football, but I love baseball. And, uh, and I heard one comedian one time describe the fundamental difference between baseball and football, and he described it like this. He says, baseball is a 19th century pastoral game. Football is a 20th century technological struggle. Baseball is played on a diamond in a park. Football is played in, on, a, on a gridiron in a stadium, sometimes called Soldier Field or War Memorial Stadium. Baseball begins in the spring, the season of new life. Football begins in the fall when everything is dying. (laughs) In football, you wear a helmet. In baseball, you wear a cap. (laughs) Football is concerned with downs. What down is it? Baseball is concerned with ups. Who's up? In in football, you receive a penalty. In baseball, you make an error. (laughs) In football, the specialist comes in to kick. In baseball, the specialist comes in to relieve somebody. Football has hitting, clipping, spearing, piling on, personal fouls, late hitting, and unnecessary roughness. Baseball has the sacrifice. Football is played in any kind of weather, rain, snow, sleet, hail, fog, and in baseball, if it rains, we don't go out to play. (laughs) Baseball has the seventh inning stretch. Football has the two-minute warning. Baseball has no time limit. We don't know when or if it's going to end. We might even get extra innings, but football is rigidly timed, and it will end even if we have to go to sudden death. In baseball, 
during the game in the stands, there's this kind of picnic feeling in the air. Yes, oh, sure. Oh, emotions run high and low sometimes, but it's never too unpleasant. But in football, during the game in the stands, you can be sure that at least 27 times you're going to be capable of taking the life of a fellow human being. (laughs) And finally, the two objectives of the games are completely different. In football, the object is for the quarterback, who's also known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. And with short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack as he punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. (laughs) And to be safe. (laughs) To be safe at home. (laughs) I love baseball. (laughs) And I think maybe one of the reasons I love baseball is that I think that's a really fundamental human desire inside each of us, isn't it? We want to be home. We just, we want to be safe at home. And as we jump into 1 John chapter 2 here this morning, here's what I want you to know as we begin. God made your heart to long for its eternal home. God made your heart to long for its eternal home. From the very moment that you were born, from the time you came into this world as an infant, you came into this world with longings, with desires, the desire to be touched and to be close and to be held and to be fed and to be safe, to be safe at home. And this is in the very core of our human nature, these these essential longings, these desires. There's not a single heart in this room that is not longing for something, craving something, wanting something, searching for something. And this is not by accident. God has made you with those desires, those longings, so that those desires will lead you ultimately to him. God made your heart to long for its eternal home. There's one ancient church teacher named Augustine, and he said it like this in a prayer to God. He said, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The 20th century author C.S. Lewis, he said it like this. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. There's such a thing as water. So if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures can satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Every craving you have, every unmet desire for sleep or food or sex or drink or friendship is designed to point you ultimately to beyond what this world can give. God made your heart to long for its eternal home. Way back in the Old Testament in the Bible, there's this guy named King Solomon and he had everything that the world had to offer, the richest, wisest man on the planet. And he knew about this fundamental longing that God has given us. He wrote this in Ecclesiastes chapter three. He says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he's also said eternity in the hearts of men. Perhaps King Solomon learned that core desire from his father, David. David was also a king and he wrote this in Psalm 63. He said, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, 
I seek you, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. David's saying that even the experience of earthly thirst is meant to lead us to a heavenly satisfaction. God made your heart to long for its eternal home. And yet here's the problem with that. Satan comes along, he's clever. And he knows that we have these longing hearts these deep, given, deep God-given desires. And so he takes those deep God-given desires and he corrupts them. You see, Satan, he's not a creator. He's a corrupter. Satan doesn't invent new things. He just takes the things that God has already made, these good things, and he twists them for his own evil purposes. You see, rather than letting our longings lead us home, Satan wants our longings to lead us to hell. That's why Solomon also wrote in Proverbs 4.23, he says, above all else, Guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Or like we just got done reading in the New Testament, 1 John chapter two, John writes to the early church, don't love the world. Do not love the world. Now that seems a little bit odd, right? Because like, isn't this the same John who wrote back in John three sixteen, for God so loved, what? The world, right? So what's the deal? Well, now he's telling us not to love the world. Well, you had English class, didn't you, in school? You know that a word sometimes can have a range of meanings, right? And so the word world in the New Testament can have about three potential different meanings. Meaning number one, you could say the world referring to like creation, just the physical earth, all the things on the planet. Or meaning number two, you could say the world referring to the people of the earth. I think this is what John was talking about in John three sixteen when he said, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the people of the world. But then there's meaning number three. And meaning number three is you could say the world referring to the corrupt system that Satan uses to enslave society. And that's what John is referring to here in 1 John chapter two. He says, do not love the world. Do not let Satan corrupt your desires. In fact, John goes so far as to say that if you allow Satan to aim your desires at the corrupted things of earth rather than at the holy God of heaven, you're not actually gonna be able to love God at all. Verse 15, he says, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. That seems like a pretty strong statement, right? So what's the big deal? Well, John gives us two reasons. Reason number one, he says, do not love the world because it replaces love for God. Do not love the world because it replaces love for God. Here's how John describes loving the world. Verse 16, he says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the father, but from the world. Now that word lust there just refers to a God-given desire that has gone bad and been corrupted by Satan. Someone once said that lusts are cravings that control you. It's a good desire that's been corrupted for evil. And we can do this with any God-given desire, right? God created us to admire beauty. And yet Satan corrupts that desire to prop up the pornography industry and to enslave people in self-destructive lust. God created us to hunger, to desire food. And yet Satan corrupts that desire to lead us into gluttony so we lose all self-control and we run to food for comfort instead of to God. God created us with sexual desires that were supposed to be an illustration of the intimacy we can have with him and supposed to connect us to our spouse. And yet Satan corrupts those desires to shatter families and to trap people in horrific cycles of abuse. God 
created us with a desire to play and to rest and to laugh. And yet Satan corrupts those desires to make us lazy so that we chase lives of ease and luxury in entertainment rather than significance and meaning and purpose in a calling from God. And Satan, he does all of this. He corrupts these good desires so that we will be stuck on the endless hamster wheel of the pursuit of happiness. Again, King Solomon in the Old Testament, he knew this. Now remember, he, he's the richest, wisest man in the whole world. He had it all. He had a kingdom. He had a palace. He had hundreds of women at his disposal. He had countless pursuits in the arts and science. He's, he had extravagant wealth. And do you know what he said about all of it? Ecclesiastes chapter one, he said, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. The problem with the pursuit of happiness, he says, is that you never get there. You never really find it. The happy doesn't last. You might recognize the name John D. Rockefeller. He was one of the wealthiest men in the world in his time. And one time Rockefeller was asked about how much money is enough money. And he said, just a little bit more. <laughs> hmm. You see, the devil would love to convince you that if you just had blank, then you'd be happy. So fill in the blank. You know, if, if, you, if you just had that job, if you just had that promotion, if you just had enough to retire, if you just had 500 more square feet on your house, if you just had some new clothes, if you just had a more fun marriage, if your kids were just a little more successful in school, then you'd be okay. Then you'd be happy. And little by little, the more you chase those desires as the source of your satisfaction, the further they will lead you away from God. Now, I am from Southwest Missouri, which is not exactly the pinnacle of civilization, if you can believe that, okay? Uh, in fact, did you know that the toothbrush was invented in Southwest Missouri? And here's how you know, because anywhere else it would have been called a teeth brush. <laughs> Think about it, you'll get it, okay? <laughs> and <laughs> growing up in Southwest Missouri, my neighbor across the street was a guy named Mr. Camler. And Mr. Camler had a bunch of animals. And so from time to time, Mr. Camler would be gone and it would be my job to go over there and take care of his animals. Well, Mr. Camler had this one particular bull who liked to find weak spots in fences. He had a knack for this and the bull's name was Elvis. And so every now and then when Mr. Camler was gone, it was not uncommon for me to walk out of the house and just find Elvis the bull right there in my yard, which presented a little bit of a problem. I don't know if you've ever tried to negotiate with a bull, but there's a reason for the phrase. You mess with the bull, you get the Horns, right? Okay, yes. And so I had this problem. I've got Elvis the bull staring me down here. And, and, and Elvis the bull, he's a lot bigger than me. And Elvis is a lot stronger than me. And some of you probably think that Elvis the bull is a lot smarter than me. And so I'm faced with this dilemma, right? But Elvis the bull had a weakness. You see, Elvis loved peaches. So it was actually a relatively simple solution to this problem. If you wanted to get rid of Elvis the bull, all you had to do was go over to the neighbor's house, grab a bunch of peaches off their peach tree and start rolling peaches. And Elvis the bull would follow from peach after rolling peach, lollygagging his way back across the street into the pasture and get locked up in the fence. And you see in this, 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 this is what the enticements of the world would like to do for you. John is saying, oh yeah, it looks good for now but Satan's just rolling peaches. Way back in the garden, in the very beginning, when he tempted Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter three says he convinced Eve that the fruit of the tree, that forbidden fruit, that it was good for food, and the Bible says, and it was pleasing to the eye. Oh, he made it look good. 
but he always overpromises and underdelivers. He promises connection, but he leaves you isolated. He promises pleasure, but he leaves you empty. He promises rest, but he leaves you anxious. He promises freedom, but he leaves you enslaved. And he entices you to chase those peaches that he rolls little by little by little, leading you further and further away from the deep satisfaction that God made you for so that you will spend your life chasing, chasing peaches instead of chasing Jesus. I think that's why John ends his book with this odd little statement here in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. It's the last verse in the whole book. John says this, he says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Boom, that's it, end of the book. Now, that would probably get a D minus in English literature, right? <laughs> and yet he gets an A plus in pastoral theology because John understands that idolatry is not bowing down to a statue in your living room. Idolatry is giving your desire for anything else more weight than your desire for God in your heart. Making good things, ultimate things. Because peaches are good, right? Nothing wrong with a peach, God made the peach. It's delicious, I love peach pie, it's wonderful, it's a great summer thing, right? And yet this was never meant to be the thing. Making good things, ultimate things. That's what the devil would love to do for you. Can I tell you what I was convicted of this week in this? I've got this antique John Deere tractor, right? And I'm working on restoring it. It's a family heirloom. It was passed down to me. It's a fun project. I'm working on it. It's a good thing. You know the problem with it? When I find myself daydreaming, when I find myself distracted, when I find myself having a spare moment, you know what I don't do? My mind does not automatically go to prayer or think who can I serve or thinking of the things of heaven or meditating on scripture. I'm thinking about John Deere tractors, right? <laughs> it's a good thing, but man, the devil would love to roll peaches. What is it for you? Maybe you're chasing a career. Maybe, maybe you have a good career. You're really making a difference, but it's taking so much of your time and mental imagery that, 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 that you're a bad spouse, that you're a neglectful parent. Maybe, maybe you work so hard to provide and to do good things for your family, but you get home at the end of the day and you're just tired, so you just flip on the TV or start scrolling your phone instead of relationally engaging with the people that God has put in your path. Or maybe you're, you're scrambling around doing so many good things with your family, but your schedule is so full that you don't have time with the Lord every day. You're not as deeply involved in the community of faith as you should be. You don't have time for a home group. Man, he'd love to roll some peaches, but how many times are we gonna chase these things before we find out that they don't satisfy the happy doesn't last. And the devil would love to get you to let those longings of your heart, those good God-given longings, he would love to get it so where that's the thing you're seeking most, that's the thing you're obeying, rather than letting those longings lead you to Jesus, who's the only one who can really satisfy them. God made your heart to long for its eternal home. And so John says, do not love the world because it replaces love for God. It reminds me of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter six, Jesus said this. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Notice, Jesus doesn't say you should not serve two masters. He says you cannot. You can't do it, it's impossible. You can't stuff yourself on the junk food of this world and still be hungry for the banquet of heaven. So let me ask you just a real hard question. If your love for God is a little stale this morning, like if, if your heart has cooled off toward him, then what are you chasing? What are you longing for? 
If I asked your kids what you desired most, what would they tell me? If I asked your spouse what you were working toward, what would they say? God made your heart to long for its eternal home and if you settle for anything less, you're just gonna be rolling peaches. Reason number one, it replaces love for God. Here's reason number two. Do not love the world, John says, because it's just a bad investment. He says this in verses 16 and 17. He says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. John's saying, hey, you would not invest money in a company that's going out of business. To chase the world is a bad investment. Specifically, John talks here about the pride of life. Now, if the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh is a corrupted desire for something that you don't have, then the pride of life is a corrupted satisfaction in something that you do have. The devil would love to get you to have a false sense of satisfaction or superiority in comparing yourself to other people or the zeros in your investment portfolio or the degrees on your wall or the number of followers you have or the resume that you have built. But to rely on earthly satisfaction is a bad investment. If your ultimate satisfaction is in your wealth, then when the stock market fluctuates, you're going to find yourself vulnerable. If your ultimate satisfaction is in your marriage or your love life, then you're gonna be crushed when you're alone or when your spouse disappoints you. If your ultimate satisfaction is found in your career, then retirement is going to make you feel useless. If your ultimate satisfaction is found in your children, then you will be crushed when they underperform. If your ultimate satisfaction is found in your beauty, then eventually gravity's gonna win on your body and life's not gonna be so fun anymore. The pride of life is a bad investment, John says, because this world is passing away. It's not gonna satisfy you forever. Jesus says it like this in Mark chapter eight. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So Jesus, he's painting this mental picture for someone. He's saying, imagine somebody who has it all. The best house, the best cars, Fortune 500 company, the most prestigious awards, the, 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 the coolest family. I mean, uh, wealth beyond your wildest imaginations. The best life imaginable. Imagine they have it all and then they get to the end of their life and they found out that in the process, they've lost their soul. That their life has been meaningless and they are destined for hell for an eternity apart from God. What do you think they would trade right then to get their soul back? What would they give? Everything, right? Money? Take it. Reputation, forget it. Accomplishments, love, life, cars, house, worthless. Take the stuff, give me my soul. Jesus is telling us something that we already intrinsically know. Your soul is worth more than your stuff, right? Take the stuff, save my soul. Someday when your loved ones stand around your casket, they're not gonna talk about the promotion you got or how talented you were. And in 10 billion years, it's not gonna matter how big your 401k was or what vacations you took or that your car is getting a little bit old. The only thing that's gonna matter is the time and the money and the love and the prayer that we have invested into eternity. God made your heart to long for its eternal home. This is one of the things I love about being a parent. Such a good reminder of the core truths, right? And we're at the phase of life where our kids are literal enough that, little enough that they take what Rebecca and I say quite literally. I'm sure that will wear off at some point, but they listen to us now and it's kind of fun. Um, and, and so when we tell our kids that someday Jesus is gonna come back and that we get to be with him forever, 
Whereas that's a reality that sometimes I can go days without dwelling on, and I'm ashamed of that. This is a, still a very tangible part of Judah's day-to-day existence. He's living in the reality that the clock is ticking, that Jesus is gonna come back soon. Is he coming back today? And so he'll just pepper us with questions, and these are real questions he's asked. Like, so when Jesus comes back, is he gonna get us in the van and take us to his house? <laughs> can I still bite my nails in heaven? <laughs> you know, the real questions. And we need to work on his theology a little bit, but I love that this kid is living with his heart fixed on heaven. So how do we get back there, right? When, when I'm distracted, when we find ourselves just chasing this world, how do we reorient our desires? Well, to start this week, I want you to just take notice of your heart. Just take a, take a desire inventory. What do you find yourself wanting? What do you find yourself wishing for? What do you find yourself working toward? And then ask God what it is that he wants you to want. And then chase him. And your heart will follow as you do his will. Notice what John says, how he ends in verse 17. He says, this world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. You know, it's nice to know for me that when, when my heart can get distracted by all the things that I see and feel and taste and touch, these tangible things in our day-to-day lives, and, and when I have a hard time sometimes aiming my affections at heaven, this is actually a temptation that Jesus himself experienced. When Jesus came to earth, Hebrews chapter four says that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he was without sin. When Jesus was beginning his ministry, he spent 40 days alone in the wilderness fasting. And the devil came to him out there in the wilderness and tried to corrupt his desires. And the devil started by trying to use the lust of the flesh. He said, hey, Jesus, you hungry? Turn those stones into bread. Your body has needs, right? No big deal. But Jesus stood firm. And so then the devil tried the lust of the eyes he said, hey, Jesus, you, you see all those kingdoms of the world? If, if you just bow down to me, if you just chase that peach, it can all be yours. Looks good, right? But Jesus didn't give in. He didn't bow. And so the devil tried the pride of life. He said, hey, Jesus, you're the son of God, right? Well, if that's really true, then just throw yourself down there. The angels will catch you. You'll be fine. Just show off a little bit. Tell everybody how awesome you are. But Jesus didn't do it. Jesus started off his ministry by choosing to do the will of God even when it was difficult. And that's how he ended his ministry too. When Jesus knelt down in the garden of Gethsemane on the last night of his life, knowing that he was headed for a cross and he prayed, Father, if there's another way out, please. But he said, yet not my will, but yours be done. And he did his father's will again and he went to the cross and he died for you and for me and he rose again to new life and now he is offering us an eternal home in his kingdom where every desire that your heart has ever had is gonna be finally and fully met in him. This is the eternal home that he has made our hearts to long for where every craving for significance, every searching for joy, every yearning for acceptance, every longing to know and to be known will be satisfied forever and we're not gonna be chasing peaches any longer. John gives us a picture of it in Revelation chapter seven. He says, never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And this is the eternal home that God has made your heart to long for. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us, for loving the world, 
And you know how fickle we are. You know how distracted our hearts can be. So our prayer this morning, King Jesus, is that you would just take our hearts and that you would aim our affections and our desires toward you. We know that you are the living water. You are the bread of life. You are the one who satisfies forever. So Lord, help us. And our prayer is that at the end of this week, we would be able to say more honestly that we love you with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.